It has become a tradition to host uh, every year at our annual Operational Excellence in Shipping Forum, a panel with the major classification societies. And we are delighted to be at this moment where we are going to have this panel again. Classification societies play a pivotal role in the industry, given their mandate to establish and maintain technical standards for construction and operation of marine vessels. And of course, they provide a widespread uh, support to the industry as the industry is going through a phase of transformation, um, regulatory change, uh, uh, technological change, and so on. So we are delighted to have with us the heads of the six, of six major classification societies. I will start from the upper left, Mr. Hiroaki Sakashita from Class NK, uh, Torsten Schramm from DNV, Chris Vernicki from ABS, Mathieu Dutigny from uh, Bureau Veritas, Hugo Salerno from RENA, and Nick Brown from Lloyd's Register. And it is tremendously fitting that uh, we have Ioana Prokopiu, uh, the CEO of Prominence Maritime, a very well-known ship owner, to moderate this panel. At the end of the day, uh, classification societies deal to a large extent with ship owners, and Ioana will take us through uh, the panel. So thank you to all of you, and Ioana, thank you very, very much for uh, putting all the effort to uh, moderate this uh, tremendous panel. Thank you, Nicolas. Let me start by saying but how happy and honored I am to be moderating a panel with such distinguished guests as, your, as yourselves. Um, the years ahead will be filled with uncertainty and the role of classification societies is pivotal for providing guidance and much needed practical and feasible solutions. I'm excited to hear from the horse's mouth, as they say, uh, towards what direction the industry will move. So without further ado, let me start by asking Torsten the following question. But please note that uh, as this will be a discussion, feel free to express your opinion in any of the questions or topics. So Torsten, decarbonization is going to be a challenging goal for the maritime industry. We see countries around us setting even more ambitious goals than initially uh, set. Do you foresee other regulatory bodies, including the IMO, raising the bar when it comes to ambition levels? And how does CLASS will make sure that we meet these goals with solutions that are feasible and practical? Thank you, Joanna. I'm pleased uh, to answer your question and uh, uh, thank you for having me uh, on this panel. Decarbonization is the challenge the maritime industry needs to meet over the coming years. It is clear that there will be more regulations coming from regional and national actors, and the ones that we already have are going to tighten. At the IMO, the pending introduction of the EEXI and the CII already mark a tightening of regulations towards the IMO's 2030 goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 40% compared to 2008 levels. But we are also seeing more pressure from outside the industry. Customer pressure at every level of the logistic chain from the public through big forwarding companies, companies like Amazon, etc., means shipping will need to continue our move towards decarbonization. There are also some, let me call it carrot initiatives, 
that will help to smooth this pathway. The Poseidon principles, as well now as some ports and some flags offering lower fees for vessels that meet already sustainability and greenhouse gas criteria. We have examples of how this approach has helped to spur innovation. The Norwegian NOx fund is a prime example. And the many ideas for an R&D fund could also serve a similar purpose by encouraging innovation, but only if we reinvest in shipping. That said, any of these regulations must be global, technology neutral, and goal-based. This has been essential to shipping success and will continue to be essential for a level playing field going forward. We still believe that the IMO is the best vehicle for driving forward decarbonization. Retreating into a patchwork of regional regulations will only create an unlevel playing field for international operators. This patchwork environment could undermine the global nature of shipping, which has unlocked the world economy. So we need to be very vigilant to this risk. Classification societies have been always working to support and facilitate the transition towards low emission shipping for many years. We can act as trailblazers for regulators, gathering exper expertise, partnering with industry and developing guidelines. We work with our customers and industry to enable solutions, not the other way around. Class rules, especially LNG and other fuel ready notations, for example, are laying the foundation, paving the way for new fuels and give owners and operators the flexibility to shift to lower and zero carbon options in the future. Rapid energy transition needs current data. So decisions are made on accurate information and analysis. At class, we will continue to need to analyze the new fuels to test their usability, bunkering, and overall greenhouse gas reductions. We have across the industry a continuing problem with siloed data, where information that could accelerate the transition and enable the development of procedures and competencies needed to meet the challenges is not being widely shared. Class thanks to its position as trusted third party, is entrusted with, lar with large amounts of data we can use to benefit the industry through submissions to IMO. This goes toward our input to the IMO via flex states. Class input on the IGF code is a prime example. We also offer industry guidance which helps owners and operators to assess their options. All of these points to class as a key enabler of decarbonization by continuing to act cooperatively. Class is technology neutral. We don't have a stake in pushing any one fuel or technology. 
Our experts have a seat at the table of all key regulatory bodies and support policy work. And we are involved in research collaborations on examining the safe implementation of low and zero carbon fuels and ongoing research into zero carbon fuels. Finally, at class, we always maintain our focus on safety because without having the safety level the world expects from shipping, we can't have a successful transition. Here class will play a role by working together with many stakeholders to analyze these new risks and to build the safety barriers that will enable us to facilitate decarbonized shipping and realize the potential of these new technologies for the maritime industry. Thank you. Looking forward to your comments or questions. Thanks a lot, Bayon. Orson, thank you for the very interesting points you, you raised. I definitely agree with you on the uh, global nature of these regulations rather than the, than the uh, regional ones that we're seeing uh, uh, pro, uh, appearing left, right and center. Um, I would add as well, if, if I may, that we should have a holistic approach uh, when we look at uh, solutions that we suggest and uh, that have a proven, uh, a proven environmental benefit through a life cycle analysis so that we don't see only half the chain, but the whole chain of uh, what we are uh, proposing. So if I may move now to Ugo. Ugo, I have a question for you. Um, during the last year, especially due to the transition to low sulfur, we saw an increase of incidents of ships losing power. Also, we have seen accidents relating to scrubber installation and their operation. Uh, for the future, we are considering even more difficult solutions like ammonia, which is toxic, hydrogen, which is explosive, even nuclear power, which is uh, very dangerous. Um, with all the new technologies and the fuels being discussed, the complexity of operating ships is only bound to increase. Do you believe that because we're so focused on the environmental regulations, we are overlooking the safety aspects of what we're proposing? Joanna, thank you. Thank you for your question. First of all, good afternoon to you and to everybody. And thank you for this invitation. Uh, let me say uh, what we are facing today are problems that are linked not only with low sulfur fuels, but also, and maybe mainly, with the use of mixture between uh, mineral fuels and biofuels that need to be micro emulsioned well before being used. Otherwise, they will create problems to filters, et cetera, and will create shutdown to the engines, et cetera. Uh, problems with scrubbers, we know that uh, are coming from corrosion. And in these, I think a, a more, a careful look at material used for these plants, it's fundamental, it's indeed of paramount importance. Uh, I must say, uh, we, as you mentioned, we are going forward to a quantum leap today because we are moving from carbon, uh, from carbon rich fuels to carbon free fuels. First of all, let me say that I don't think that nuclear is very dangerous, but it's definitely not popular. So I will forget speaking about nuclear because I think that it will not be feasible for a long time. Uh, we are speaking therefore uh, to use uh, different energy sources like ammonia and hydrogen. 
I must say that I am not worried about the use of these fuels if they are applied by people that knows very well the technology and the way of handling this kind of fuels. And uh, uh, I, I must say that the maritime world uh, has the advantage of taking uh, uh, the uh, experience that is already done in the industry ashore and in the transport world that is already using these type of fuels. And I believe that classification societies, in order to develop uh, sensible regulations, must be very well aware of what they are talking about. This is why RINA is working since many years now with these fuels, mainly, of course, onshore and in the industrial uh, and the transport world. Uh, just to give you a feeling of what we are doing and what is done already ashore uh, to use this type of fuels, I will give you a few examples very, very synthetically. If I speak about uh, hydrogen, for example, uh, we uh, are uh, experiencing already the use of blends with betaine with percentage of hydrogen, which raised still to uh, 30% or even more, used in uh, industrial burners or in the production of steel. And these exper experiments are working very well. Uh, in addition, we have to work on materials able to work with uh, ammonia and hydrogen. And to give you an example, we are qualifying now the complete network of SNAM, that is the largest network in Europe, just to give you an, a figure, 33,000 kilometers of pipeline network that we are qualifying for the use and transport of pure hydrogen. Uh, for another, another point is that hydrogen must be carried and uh, therefore you will need very sophisticated containment systems. Uh, uh, and these containment systems need to work at uh, very high pressure. Uh, we are uh, carrying out experiments in one of our laboratories up to 1000 bars on these type of fuels in order to have an efficient containment system. This is a very unique experience. In fact, Fraunhofer Institute is doing their tests in our laboratory because working with so high pressure is definitely a very, very challenging thing. We are cooperating with Dalston, for example, for trains fueled with hydrogen. These trains will go into service in 2023 but there is already one train that is traveling in Germany uh, done by Alstom that is fueled by hydrogen. Uh, we are cooperating in the marine field with Varsila for four stroke engines operated with ammonia. And we are cooperating with Sdari, for example, uh, to uh, design vessels that will be able to be used with ammonia and methanol. Uh, so uh, with Fincantieri, we are finalizing the construction of a small vessel that is fueled with hydrogen and that uses fuel cells. These are just a few examples of what RINA, but I imagine that also others are doing in the industry today, and that can be transferred very well to the maritime world that can take advantage of these experiences. Uh, and we, of course, as RINA, are ready to share our experiences with the industry and also with our colleagues, because we believe that these uh, uh, energy transition is uh, uh, one of the most important challenges that the world is facing today. And uh, therefore we must put forward 
the help and the support and the contribution to this transition, even before the commercial advantages that each society can take by having a leading position. We are ready to cooperate and we will be pleased to be part of this process. Thank you. Hugo, thank you for the excellent comments you made. I'm very happy that you're very optimistic about um, the, uh, the feasibility of all these new fuels. I'm a bit worried and I, I'm glad that US class uh, uh, is quite optimistic about their feasibility and about their safety. So it's good to, to know. Um, let's move on to Mathieu. Um, as we all know, Mathieu, there's a shortage of qualified crew and this is only bound to get worse as the number of ships increases. How do you foresee the role of the seafarers who at the end of the day will be tasked with handling both the fuels and the new equipment? Does class take into account the human element when discussing these complex new environmental solutions? Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you, Ioana, for this very uh, sensitive uh, question. Uh, I think it's a, it's a well-established uh, principle that in our maritime industry, safety always comes first. I mean safety for the people and by the people. So uh, as we know well, uh, we are all facing and, and all racing against time to succeed the decarbonization at the required pace. And more than ever, that race uh, will not be won without the runners. By this, I mean that the ships, you know, will not switch uh, to the new fuels if we don't have the competent crew to run them, of course. And as much as it is important, I think it's, it's difficult as everything has to progress concurrently. Knowledge and technology, development of regulations, qualification requirements as expressed earlier, training curricula. So I'd like to uh, introduce, uh, let's say, three factors which, to my mind, will help providing an answer you know, to this uh, issue. The first factor is uh, what I could call risk-proofing of vessels. In fact, we are not in a complete uh, discovery mode, as some of us have the previous experience of LNG propulsion, for instance. At least do we know that the path to be followed when it comes to secure alternative designs required by the use of new technologies. By definition, the notion of an alternative design means that there is no safety regulation to address the potential related risk, and therefore other risk assessment and uh, mitigation methods have to be used. Why? Because the lack of uh, prescriptive rules, uh, you know, uh, here is mitigated by a specific formal risk assessment approach the outcomes of which will become part of the vessel and company you know, safety management system. So based on this uh, experience, my, my recommendation would be to, to integrate early uh, the crew in the risk studies so th that they are fully uh, familiar with the design of the installation, the way how to safely operate it, and of course the, uh, the potential risk. The second factor, uh, I would call it the training uh, proficient crew. You know, the safety management system and the crew who implement it are integral to the safety net. With the decarbonization coming ahead, there will be a, indeed a huge pressure, I think, on the industry to find out some proficient crew. 
So it will be a, a collective challenge to train numerous uh, seafarers for the safe use of these new uh, technologies. As for the uh, LNG propulsion, the regulator will define the requirements in terms of training and the IGF code, notably, will be amended to address the safety, the specific needs, as will be the STCW uh, convention we, we all know here. So having said that, there are two questions we, we have in mind. This is what training and how to train the thousands of uh, seafarers, you know, in a relatively short time span. So about the, the nature of the training itself, I think that the maritime uh, academies and universities in collaboration with the industry and the class societies, I think are prepared to this, will have to offer advanced training curricula for the masters, engineer officers and others having Uh, direct uh, responsibilities might also prove to be necessary or at least uh, useful for certain types of fuels and technology. Also, as required by the ISM code requirement, all crew members have to undergo a familiarization training when boarding the vessels, which obviously will have to include the key safety features and aspects to the propulsion plant when uh, alternative fuel uh, is in use, uh, of course. So the second question is how to cope, you know, with the number of uh, seafarers to be trained, your point. Uh, so here again, uh, the maritime universities will remain key players in the qualification of the seafarers. And likely the digital platforms and online training, uh, you know, will help to cope with the demand. But I think it's a, a good transition for my, my third factor, which is making, uh, you know, the maritime carriers more attractive. So uh, I said, uh, this is a growing concern, uh, you know, when we look at the shortage of crew, which may really become uh, acute uh, in the future. So can we, uh, can we take it as a fact that the sea, you know, has lost uh, its uh, attractiveness amongst the youngsters? Well, uh, honestly, I'm not prepared to that. And uh, when I see the, the patient that shipping is still able to generate, I'm uh, tempted to say that probably all of us have not enough promoted our industry in the schools and the colleges. And again, uh, our industry is not uh, like any other and has this uh, superior uh, mission of connecting the world. So my message to the young generations would be test it and you will certainly uh, like it. And here, what I regard as more uh, promising uh, is uh, probably the transformation of the work uh, nature on both the vessels. We shall need uh, you know, young talents on board and onshore capable of drawing from the ship's data, you know, the future vessels operating on safety models. So the jobs will, uh, will diversify to new uh, disciplines and the new maritime carriers, no doubt, will be of a higher profile and offer more onshore conversion opportunities as well. So if we uh, collectively uh, succeed, then we can be optimistic that the concern of a crew shortage will have been tackled for the seafarers good uh, and for the good of the ships, trade and eventually uh, the society. So to conclude and back to my uh, introduction, uh, I will have a final word about crew safety. Not only should we look at uh, safety by the crew, but again, you know, and most importantly, as safety for the crew. 
And uh, as an industry, we shall have to provide the relevant responses for each of the fuels being considered. And here, class societies, uh, IAX, uh, as a general, and to as we reminded, you know, by, by my colleagues, will have uh, definitely a key role to assist uh, the industry. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you, Mathieu, for your very interesting uh, answer. Um, of course, I'm very much worried about the lack of qualified crew, and I think a lot of the, my fellow ship owner friends also worry about this. And uh, at least in Greece, there's been a great push towards making uh, the maritime profession more attractive by, you know, campaigns and education at school, etc. And I think this is definitely a way forward um, in order to attract more people. So excellent points raised. And um, moving on to Sakashita-san, uh, we have seen classification societies having the difficult task of working simultaneously with flags, shipyards, engine makers, and owners. And it always uh, struck me of how challenging it must be to be balancing uh, the dealing with so many different parties and interests. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about this uh, role that the classification societies have? Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. And the Iana, uh, uh, thank you very much for your understanding uh, for the nature of our work. And uh, I'd say, yes, it is sometimes sometimes difficult, but I think it is rather simple. And the, uh, the top priority of class is pursuit of safety and environmental protection at every stage. Class is an intersection, is at an, an intersection of many stakeholders, but the green light is only turned on when compliance uh, with the standard is confirmed, the fact base. These standards are set of rules established by, by ourselves and international conventions commonly agreed at. Uh, at the IMO. These standards are not uh, the uh, reflection of interest of any particular sector. Even some of them are uh, built on compromise among the industry, but are the best possible or transparent framework. As a class has remained uh, neutral or independent and impartial to any interest. The business model uh, born in 17th century is still working and it will continue to be core of the class society. Of course, class society must continue to prove its expertise so that our judgments are accepted and hopefully regarded with respect in the, in the industry. They should be demonstrated through our behavior, appropriate plan approval and on-site surveys, development of the uh, streamlined rules and around the outcomes as the technical background. Speaking of the qualification to gain the trust from the industry, a class is subjected to the flag state audits and also the third parties audit to maintain IAX membership. 
Meanwhile, seeing the uh, current challenge, challenges of decarbonization, digitalization, or uh, attention uh, to SDGs and ESG management. I believe that low low class can be extended more to bring about solutions for various challenges like zero emission, uh, further efficiency and safety or decent working condition. More players are working on developing innovative technologies and uh, initiatives, and more players are willing to deploy them. Innovations are likely to aim not just for compliance, but for something making business operation better or making the world greener. To encourage the development and the implement implementation of innovations for higher levels, someone should endorse them in line with any standard and verification. Even the clear rule have not yet been established. Such certification must be quick to follow up the rapidly advancing technology and must be collaborative to make the adequate evaluation standards in the interaction uh, with front runner uh, who develops innovations. I think that's a field for the class now. The class supports advanced projects from aspects of safety and regulatory compliance, which will move forward their spread. While the knowledge and experience gained through the innovations uh, involvement in this series of advanced projects will be later developed to rules and standards commonly applicable. The establishment of such rules further accelerates the adoption of new technologies around the industry. In addition, class themselves will utilize the outcomes from partnerships for their appropriate approval and survey works in the upcoming future, which are the class, original role of the class. I think uh, the nature of class societies, impartial from any stakeholder, makes it possible to take such responsibility. And I'm glad to play that role. Thank you very much. Sakashita-san, thank you very much for your very well uh, um, uh, well, very well put and rounded uh, answer. I think the key is, as you said, impartial judge, because otherwise uh, difficulties will arise when you don't have this role. And I think it's crucial. And also, as you said, it's very important to remain relevant. And uh, I think class has a very important role of uh, the technical expertise that is missing in our sector. And it's very important to keep that and to focus on the, on the technical expertise uh, 
uh, and the rest, uh, there are so many other bodies putting regulations and pressuring the industry. So I think you should, classification societies should continue being uh, facing the facts and science and giving the, the technical background for all those regulations that are that are being formulated as we speak. So your role is very, very important. And thank you for your, for your answer. Um, moving on to Nick, uh, we see more and more nowadays how interdisciplinary the different sectors of shipping have become. In the past, insurance companies only did insurance, banks provided finance and uh, so forth. While the primary role of classification society was to validate ship designs according to the standards, and to ensure with periodical surveys that the vessels continue to meet their, those requirements. What we see during the recent years is charters, associations, and private companies like Okim, Foil Majors, and recently Rightship stepping into areas that were traditionally class material. They are evaluating the designs of the ships, asking for annual physical inspections by their surveyors, and even carrying out their own structural assessments. What is your position on this development? And do you see a different role for classification societies going uh, forward? Thank you, Joanna. And um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Uh, pleasure to join this panel. Um, if I may, I'm going to answer the question from a class surveyor's perspective. Um, but before I do so, on behalf of the whole panel, I'd like to pass our thanks to all of our field surveyors across IACS who've continued to attend uh, for surveys on ships in dry docks and offshore units throughout the pandemic. Uh, you're making us all very proud and have certainly been key workers for our industry in helping to ensure supply chains stay open. And of course, we maintain our environmental and safety performance of the industry. So to your question, um, I'm sure we'll all remember there were a number of high profile oil tanker disasters that happened in the 90s and in the 2000s with older tankers that at the time were chartered by oil majors and tragically broke up and um, spilled their cargoes in uh, environmentally sensitive waters. At that time, I was working personally in the dry docks in the Middle East, carrying out special surveys in conjunction with rafting, cargo and ballast tanks in the Red Sea or at anchorage before the ship entered dry dock. And in those days, we didn't have rules for protective coatings of steel it, and it wasn't uncommon for ships over 20 years of age to arrive in a dry dock and require hundreds of tons of steel uh, renewal. It was from those days that condition assessment programs and those additional vetting surveys that you described, Joanna, uh, originally started. And of course, from there, it became harder to charter older ships to oil majors and later large dry cargo charters. And clearly our industry is night and day from, from that time, just 20 years ago. And ships are just not reaching that condition anymore. So all efforts, I think, from all parties should be congratulated for the role that we've played in, in improving the overall standard uh, of our vessels. That said, nowadays, the marine industry is going through a rapid transformation. And whilst we've been able to help keep the shipping industry safe during the pandemic by increased use of remote surveys, of course, if there's an appetite in the industry then the class societies that are carrying out remote surveys 
could indeed uh, invite other interested parties to watch the live streaming of those surveys. This could include flags, charters, insurers, rightship, etc. And that way we could live share our findings from our surveys and inspections and not duplicate them. That said, I don't envisage that all surveys can be done remotely. There's more to our surveys than just checking compliance with rules. It's about reading the situation on board, talking to the uh, officers and crew on board and using not just our eyes or our sight, but also sound, smell, touch and sharing our technical knowledge and expertise. However, we as an industry still do rely on time-based survey regimes. By that, I mean annual surveys and five-year gaps between special surveys. And I believe as an industry, we can use data and machine learning much more effectively to challenge our time-based inspection regime and in time supplement it. As we gain experience, we should look to introduce data-driven risk-based inspection that is informed by sensors, machine learning, and should look to introduce um, uh, physical surveys and attendance by our experienced surveyors around the world when that data tells us our attendance is necessary, not just when the calendar tells us our attendance is necessary. So I'm suggesting we need both machine learning and human learning to further improve the safety, environmental and commercial performance of our industry. A big challenge in the past has been the reliability of sensors, the connectability of Wi-Fi and the ship to shore data transfer. But all of these challenges are now being rap rapidly tackled. At Lloyd's Register, we've recently launched the Safety Tech Accelerator to support the accelerated real life demonstration of new technologies in our industry with the aim to make the industry safer. And I'm very excited about a new project that will test sensors in the cargo holds of container ships to try to detect signs of heat and fire earlier. These wireless sensors are very novel in their design and how they're powered. They don't require power from cables and they don't require power from batteries. Instead, like kinetic watches that many of us wear on our, riches, uh, on our wrists, they uh, harvest energy from their immediate environment. Lloyd's Register's foundation ownership structure allows us to make these investments for the benefit of the whole industry, as we've done recently with our maritime decarbonisation hub, which we launched last year. I believe there's a pressing need for trusted advice and guidance to support maritime stakeholders through the fundamental changes they face. And I firmly believe that class societies can play that role as advisors. We're all independent, and we're all impartial. We're technical experts, and we need to ensure we match our investment in machine learning with our investment in human learning, so that we remain best placed to advise the industry during this rapid time of change. Then, of course, we need to accelerate our collaboration. Safety and environmental performance is a team sport. The industry as a whole doesn't win if one member of the team has a casualty. And IAX, of course, is the hub of our collaboration. So as I prepare to step into my new role from the 1st of July, I'll be looking to work with the support of my fellow panelists to ensure that IAX is more visible as an advisor on the possibilities for new technology and knowledge to further improve our industry as together we seek to embed safety, sustainability and human factors in all areas of maritime.
Nick, thank you for your very interesting uh, answer. Um, congratulations on your new role and uh, looking forward to your tenure as uh, in Ajax. Um, I was very happy to hear about what you said about the sensors and the uh, machine learning, et cetera, because we've also embarked on our own, on our own uh, journey of uh, having live data from the ship to shore so we can better monitor what our vessels are doing, how they're performing, their speed, their hours, the running hours, the temperatures and everything on a live uh, manner. So we're very excited to hear you're also uh, finding this helpful. And um, thank you for your, your, your insightful answer. Now, moving on to Chris. We have seen in the past many contradictory environmental uh, studies. And time has proven that the majority of the technical and commercial predictions of the last decade were not accurate. Uh, in one uh, study, the last decade predicted that by now, 2020, we should have thousands of LNG-fueled ships Still, we don't even have the bunkering infrastructure to, for LNG uh, vessels to bunker. So how can we trust the present predictions on the technological developments and what are the tools for a proper evaluation of what are the correct decisions for the future? Great question, Iona. So let me try to frame this out and uh, break it down. I think we all know that our, our as we've all talked about, is, is playing out. In fact, we've been going green for several years now. Just think about EEDI, SEMP, MRV, low sulfur caps, even eco chips. But I think what's different now is that the new regulations have given us, quite honestly, very clear lines of sight and timelines that will impact kind of our speed and scope. So now there's no question all our eyes are on 2023, 2030, and 2050. The environmental regulations that we've all talked about, quite honestly, are creating a new language in shipping. It's CO2 emissions per ton mile. And I think when you combine that with the new technologies and probably more importantly, the rate of change of new technology, it is going to drive and shape commercial decisions. It'll shape the way we manage risk and probably uh, now more than ever. I think in reality, uh, when you look at the, the answer going forward and, and, and we've talked about it, it's going to be a hybrid solution. There's not gonna be a silver bullet. It's gonna require essentially uh, combinations of alternate fuels, technology and operational efficiency. And as we've all talked about, decarbonization and digitization are essentially gonna cross over and work together and in fact, digitization is going to be, for us, I think, a value opportunity for decarbonization. But I have to tell you, our world is no longer one dimension. And I think this is something that, is, uh, that uh, we're all kind of looking at right now. It is multi-dimensional, different pathways, different optimization models. Quite frankly, the challenge uh, is trying to figure out what is going to be the right combination for, for a ship or quite honestly, even for a shipping company. And all this is being impacted by charter agreements, trade routes, policy, owner's risk appetites, and commercial profiles. So what does this mean? I think it means that environmental studies, uh, Iona, both past, 
present and quite honestly in the future are going to need to be very carefully assessed as we study them in terms of technical and commercial assumptions. The studies tend to be dimensional, yet the real world that we're living in now forward is going to be multi-dimensional. Scalability, suitability, listen, potential for carbon reduction. In the past, we focused a lot on what is going on in the combustion cycle. Three or four years later now, we're talking about carbon reduction looking at from the well to the wake uh, and, and the impact on its value chain. So we are going to view the world differently going forward. And I think it's going to be really important uh, in terms of uh, understanding both the technology readiness and the major components. And when you look at technology readiness, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, uh, some statistics here. There's some low hanging fruit. Clearly the biggest, the biggest uh, element for us going forward will be all alternate fuels. Uh, but, and that'll probably be about 60 to 70% of the solution. But listen, advances in whole design, biomimetry, looking at biological systems for next generation of whole resistance, that'll offer about 10 to 20%. And operational performance relative to how the vessels are run now uh, is probably going to offer another you know, 15%. So it's not a surprise. The lowest impact has the greatest technology readiness. and the highest impact has the lowest technology readiness. But as we move forward, again, we have to recognize that success is going to be a team sport. Uh, new designs are going to be looked at in terms of future proving, bridging and transition potential based on different fuel pathways and obviously fuel availability. And this has started, okay? I'll go back to LNG. When you look at uh, what is going on as dual fuel engines are increasingly entering the market, uh, we're beginning to see that the maturity of, of uh, LNG as a scalable low carbon option is becoming to be highlighted. It's an option, quite honestly, that can be adapted today. Um, and quite honestly, um, it is probably to be, uh, in, in many ways, certainly the most uh, um, scalable uh, low emissions fuel that we have, but we have to recognize that the maturity gap between LNG and ammonia is probably 10 years and the maturity gap between ammonia and hydrogen is probably uh, another 10 years. So I, I think that when you look at what's going on in the order book, there's about 4% of the entire order book uh, net uh, LNG carriers right now uh, is LNG. Uh, and we expect that to increase to about 14 to 20% 20 in 2023. Uh, it is a transition uh, fuel, and, it, and, and quite honestly, any alternate fuel, any option, uh, will have to go through the same challenges that LNG is slowly uh, working its way through. Thank you, Chris. I that, uh, you know, kind of as I kind of, I just wanted to close this thing down real quickly, uh, Iona, and basically say that uh, I think what we need to recognize is that there is no one uh, one fit all solution, and it's going to be kind of uh, more importantly, um, uh, and there's not going to be a one fit all environmental study uh, going forward. Thank you for your answer. I, we only have very few minutes, but uh, let me uh, 
raise this question because you mentioned the low hanging fruit and I, I'm very tempted to, to say this, which is the question that we all have at hand. Um, if let's say we wanted to build a new vessel today, what are the technologies that would deem the ship compliant for its lifetime? And due to the lack of proven technologies, should shipyards and class be designing vessels with the existing tried and proven technologies optimized at lower speeds and with larger carrying capacities? Because as you said, it's CO2 per ton mile, because this is the only certain thing that can reduce emissions per ton mile by more than 50%. And with the current regulation, make this the vessel compliant until 2050. What do you think? I mean, this is an open opener to the panel with the little minutes we have left. Joanna, may I say one small thing, Hugo? Sure. Okay, today's technologies will allow a reduction in emission, of course, because we see very few efficient vessels. These, I should say, in terms of saving of consumption per ton mile, can be more easily applied to vessels like car carriers or uh, ferries that are uh, organizing their trips and can change their shape in order to carry the best quantity of cargo compared to what is their route it's a bit more difficult to do this on bulk vessels like bulk carriers and tankers. So uh, of, of course, uh, uh, we were mentioning and Chris was mentioning, there is not only one technology uh, in front of us in order to meet all the uh, requirements of EXI, for example, or CS, CII. Uh, of course, uh, we have to think also to the application to the user of LNG as an intermediate fuel, but also to more efficient shapes uh, because we need to reduce the power installed on board in order to comply with the indexes. For the existing vessels, for example, one solution is to reduce speed. And this will be very helpful for owners working in bulk and tankers because it immediately, uh, by reducing speed, it reduces fleet. It is not applicable to car carriers and, and uh, ferries. So it's not a single solution, but it's a, 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 uh, an improvement of uh, uh, existing technologies in order to reach the maximum effect and moving towards uh, the next technologies. I agree. It is a temporary measure until we find the new technologies, but it always it was always a surprise to me why should oil travel at 15 knots and not at 12 given the huge impact that it would have on the environment and uh, this is this is a low hanging fruit sorry the, the 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 fleet the world fleet will be obliged to steam at 12 knots as you say because otherwise existing vessels will not comply with the EXI and this is having a beneficial effect on the fleet because it's reducing, immediately reducing the fleet and uh, does not change anything yeah. if you have not uh, a tight schedule to, uh, uh, let's say, to fulfill with your trip. It is about organi organizing your logistics as well when you, when you say exactly. that. It is about organizing logistics. I see, please. I was going to just, I was just going to say, Yona, that as we move forward that, uh, listen, um, 
uh, in where we are right now, that low hanging fruit for us right now is basically in two buckets. It is things to do with hole design, um, hole resistance, and optimum performance. That, that's where we do it. And quite frankly, as, as we navigate through EEXI, we will get through it with engine power limitation and active uh, energy saving devices. But as we move forward until the story gets written out, because you've got to remember that new designs, energy content and energy density of these alternate fuels, they are going to change everything. So I expect to see a kind of a lot of incremental movements. I don't, I don't expect anything uh, uh, significant. You got to follow the engine uh, technology. And, and like I said, as you look at this path, what we see right now in terms of maturity, uh, and we do need to move forward. Listen, LNG's probably got about 10 years on ammonia and hydrogen, and ammonia's probably got about 10 years on hydrogen, and those vessels will look different 20 years from now. So we're not there yet, and I think, uh, and, and I'll, I'll ask one more thing, and then I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Remember the charters. The charter is very important in this equation relative to ordering vessels in terms of, uh, because they also now have to step up and are part of the solution as well. It's not only on the owners. Chris, thank you for your, your, uh, your intervention. Charters have a very important role to play. They give also the direct the instructions to the vessels, the speed, the route, et cetera. So they should also be part of the solution rather than just saying nice words in public, et cetera, and stepping up in, uh, sharing their part and playing their role because we follow their orders at the end of the day. So if they want to be environmentally friendly, there are very easy ways to be, and they should also be part of the solution. And I want to thank you all because I see Nicholas is uh, on the image, so we need to wrap it up. Thank you all for the insightful and honest conversation that we had. It was a pleasure to see you all, even though it was on a screen. Let me reiterate from my side the importance of staying relevant, sticking to science and to practical and applicable solution, because this is what we all expect from class to do. And even though the conversation today was a bit on a theoretical level, history will show whether we were pointing towards the right direction. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you to everybody. Thank you. Stay safe and well. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you.